Welcome to the FPC Thomasville podcast. We believe human life has a designer, so learning to live by design will help you thrive within all your spheres of influence. Today, Dr. Tim Filston will share a message titled, Standing Accused of Love. The scripture passage for today is 1 Corinthians 13, 1-13, which will help us answer the question, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, this morning we are uh, we're talking about love, and uh, we're talking about it because we're, we're we're going into this ordination Sunday with this captivating image of people who are willing to step into these roles to serve, to show uh, in action what what love is. Now, sometimes when, when I when I speak about a subject like like love, but especially the subject of love. It can sound kind of like a soft thing, like a soft word. You know, what does Sunday have to do with Monday? Sometimes we think, you know, the things we talk about on Sunday, just, they, they just stay on Sunday. They just belong on Sunday. You know, it's nice, happy talk for Sunday. But then, you know, we get up the next day and we see that, you know, it was Iran that shot down that, uh, that plane, that Ukrainian uh, commercial jet. What does Sunday have to do with, with Monday? Or, or maybe you go to the lunch table, and in order to, uh, to fit in with, with that crowd there, you, you certainly don't want to talk about something like love. It can seem like kind of a soft word. You know, it's a little like, you know, I think, you know, the image I, I think of is like the, a, a child who likes everything on his plate or her plate, but they don't want things touching, right? You know, like, okay, I'll eat my asparagus, but it's touching, it's touching my mashed potatoes, you know? We don't, we don't want Sunday values and talk to touch Monday issues. Is love a soft word? In fact, not. Love is more action than attraction. Jesus knew when to turn the other cheek. He also knew when to turn over the tables. And so we're called to demonstrate love in action. Love is what love does. Love is what love does. And so I want to ask you this morning, if you were dragged into court accused of love, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? From the word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 through 13. This sometimes is read at weddings. It's called, sometimes called the love chapter. And this morning, I invite you, in place of the word love, I want you, as I'm reading this, I want you to insert your name. Let's turn to the word of God. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. All right, I just realized my mistake now. Don't insert your name there, but have not Tim, have not Julie or whatever. Uh, start with verse 4. I, I seriously want you to think about this. When we get to verse 4, I want you to insert your name. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. 
It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. May God bless us this morning through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God bless this word this morning, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts that we may believe it and to our lives live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Another question. Do you love people? How do you know? Do you love people? How do you know? Is it by your standard? Is it because you feel loving towards people? Do you love people? How do you know? I heard a story about two men who were sitting and having uh, dinner. And uh, it's kind of a family restaurant. They brought out two pieces of fish and set it down on the table. So two entrees on the same serving plate. And one of the men took the biggest fish and put it on his own plate and put the smaller piece on the other guy's plate. And the other guy said, well, if I had done the serving, then I would have given you the bigger piece. And he said, well, I have it. (laughs) You know, a lot of times what we think of as love is my action that looks loving. We're not thinking about the other person's good. We're thinking about the credit that we get for having done the good. Do you love people? How do you know? It feels a little different now that I asked it. Love wills the good of the other. That's a great definition for love. What is love? It's to will the good of the other and to know what that is to be discerning about what that means. Do you love? Do you will the good of the other, whether you get credit for it or not? Whether it comes across as nice or not? Whether you're pleasing that person in that moment or not? Do you will the good of others? Paul gives 15 different words for what love does or does not do. We're going to look at, at five. Really, we're going to look at four, and then the fifth one is going to explain to us something. I'm packaging these this morning. We're going to look at what love does and doesn't do, two things love does, two things love doesn't do, and then we're going to look at why Paul thinks we're capable of this high standard. Why does Paul think we're capable of this high standard? What does love do? What doesn't it do? And why 
does God, speaking through this mouthpiece of Paul, through 1 Corinthians, why does he think we're capable of it? First of all, love is patient. This is one, one thing that love does. Love is patient. I've told some of you my definition of patience. It's, it's, an, it's an increment of time between when the light in front of you turns green and the guy behind you honks, right? All right? It's that measurement of time when you're sitting there at the, and, the, and the light turns green and then you wait, wait, and you didn't jump on your accelerator and the guy behind you honks. It's that amount of time. That's, that's what patience is. You ever wonder, you ever, you ever ask yourself, why is that person in your life who makes you feel impatient? Why is, that, why is this person in my life? Have you ever considered that maybe that person is there, not by accident? That perhaps God is working in the circumstances of your life, in the people of your life, in the events of your life, to make you someone of patience. You know, somebody said that, that all the other virtues flow out of the time it takes to be patient. Flow out of patience. And so if you're practicing patience, if you're the guy who's behind the guy who's not jumping on the accelerator, if you're the guy who's wanting to honk, if you're the guy who's practicing impatience, did you know that practice doesn't make perfect? Practice makes permanent. So what are you practicing? What are you practicing when no one's looking? What are you practicing? You know, we don't get away with honking at people in Thomasville the way you do in bigger cities. So I had to lay off the horn. It's been kind of a pain, really. I'm kidding, all right? I still honk. Practice makes permanent. What are you practicing? You know, I've noticed, you know, in... In, you know, I've struggled to play the guitar. I've struggled for 30 years to play the guitar. But when I put it down and I come back to it, I can play better than I did when I stopped playing it because muscle memory. I'm not trying as hard. Just to, or maybe think of your golf swing or maybe tennis or something. Anything that you do over and over and over again, muscle memory is powerful, right? It's amazing. You know, maybe you hadn't water skied for a long time and all of a sudden, hey, it just comes back to you just like that. Riding a bike, right? Muscle memory. What you're practicing over and over again develops a certain capacity. And a lot of us are practicing the capacity to be impatient. But love is patient. What are you practicing? Love is kind. And as I mentioned earlier, that doesn't necessarily mean that love is always nice. Kindness and nice are different. Nice is like having good etiquette, all right? Now, etiquette is kind of a funny word because it goes back to, it really, it, it comes from the, the word ticket. So ticket and etiquette have the same root. And the ticket uh, that, that it goes back to is a ticket that you would receive if you were going before royalty, before the king and the queen. And that ticket would say, here's how you're supposed to bow and scrape, and here's how many steps, and here's how you're supposed to back out of the room and never turn your back on the king. And so that you are demonstrating outwardly so that the king and the queen can see whether or not there's something in your heart that honors the king or queen, at least you're showing honor to the king. Now, this is what got Jesus into hot water. Jesus was accused of what? Of being a friend to sinners. 
Jesus was accused of healing somebody on Sunday. Now, that's a funny one, right? And he says to them, he appeals to them at the level of their conscience. He says, hey, you know, which of you would not get an animal out of a pit if he fell into the pit on a Sunday or on a Saturday at that time, on the Sabbath? They accused him of breaking the law. And he's saying, well, God measures the heart. This isn't just about etiquette. If I'm healing someone on Sunday or on the Sabbath, as Jesus is saying, then I'm understanding what the law is for. The law is the law of love. The law is to demonstrate honor to somebody else, to help somebody. It's, it's not to say that, that uh, you know, Jesus also said there's not a jot or a tittle that will pass away from the law, but what's the law for? Don't miss the forest, right? Don't miss the forest. The purpose of the law is love to demonstrate trust and love and faith. And so Jesus, in healing on the Sunday, is not breaking the law. He may be breaking etiquette because uh, at, at that time what they were trying to do was just say, well, here's how we know that people are practicing the Sabbath. They're not supposed to do all these other things, and all those other things were added as a layer onto the top of the heart of the law. Let's see, love is kind. Love is discerning about what's necessary in the moment. Love is not just about outward appearances of etiquette. Love measures the heart. Love is kind. Those are two things that love does, and it kind of organizes this whole chapter as practical examples of what we can do or what we should be looking for, or maybe an index of whether or not you're there yet. And then it goes into a couple of other things that says what love is not. Love, is, love does not envy you say, well, Tim, I don't walk around feeling envious of other people. I don't compare myself to other people. Oh, don't you? You don't? Let me read this quotation from Henry Drummond. He says, whenever you attempt a good work, you will find others who are attempting the same kind of work and probably doing it better. <laughs> oh, that hurts, doesn't it? You don't feel envious until you see somebody else succeeding, right, at what you're trying to do. And then what comes out? That kind of squeezes you, doesn't it? And, and then you, you discover in that moment, are you an orange with sweet juice or are you a lemon with sour juice? You get squeezed in those moments when you see other people succeeding. Do you will their good? In that moment, when you see someone else doing well at the thing you're trying to do well, or do you envy Don't get discouraged, all right? No, I'm going to redeem this. It's going to be all right. I'm just, I'm kind of setting you up so that, you know, I can tell you why you're capable of this. So just relax. You'll be all right. Love does not envy. Love does not rejoice in the bad things or in the wrong things that are being done around you. It doesn't rejoice in the wrong things. You think, well, of course I don't do that. I mean, I definitely don't do that. Now, you got me on the envy thing, but I don't rejoice when people do wrong things. I want people to do right things around me. Oh, really? Mm. What about when you really want them to do the wrong thing because you were building a case against them, right? Oh, I hope they do that thing again because when they do, boom, I'm going to get them this time, right? I'm ready. You know, they've been doing this thing that's just, I just don't like it, and I really hope they do it again, right? Because now I'm now I'm prepared. I'm spring-loaded, right? 
Remember those little, uh, those little things, those little suction cups with the spring on it? I used to love those things. I had a little frog that had a suction cup and a little spring, and I kind of mash it down and just wait. I just sit there and wait until it goes, Pop! right? And I always said it before somebody who wasn't expecting it, you know? And that's you, that's me. When, when someone is doing something in a pattern of life, and you're like, you know, I really hope they do that again, because I know what I'm going to say to them this time. That's rejoicing in the wrong. You know, I, I heard about uh, this principle of farming. That um, there was a farmer in particular who, who had this great seed of, of new corn, and he planted it for um, uh, in these th- this tract of land that he was developing. And um, and some neighbors heard about it, and they would they wanted some of it. And he said, "No, I don't. I'm not going to give any to you." And the first year he had this bumper crop of corn that was just super sugar sweet kind of corn and um, just killed it in the market, you know. And the next year, it wasn't quite as good. And then the third year, it was just back to the way it used to be. And he realized that, uh, that his corn was being pollinated by all the other fields around him of inferior corn because he hadn't shared that, the corn with, the, with, with his neighbors. And so, see, that's what we're doing when, when we're rejoicing in the wrong, when we're kind of hoping that other people are going to mess up around us, what we're doing is we're, we're going to end up getting the blowback, right? In other words, somebody has to go first. If you're in a pattern where you're in this negative pattern with somebody, who, are you just waiting on them? They may be waiting on you. Somebody has to break that cycle by being the one to go first, to stop rejoicing in the wrong. You say, Tim, you know, I'm kind of discouraged because I, I've tried these things and I, I know that they're the right thing to do, but now that you brought it up on a Sunday and you've illustrated it with such you know, vividness, I realize when I put my name in there, I, it doesn't really fit. Doesn't, it definitely doesn't fit 100%, and I'm not sure if it even, even fits 51%, and that's kind of discouraging. Well, let me tell you why Paul holds up to us this standard. Why does he think that this would do nothing more than just demoralize us? Why does he think we're capable of this? Why does Paul think we're capable of it? And it has to do with two other verses that inform this passage. Philippians 1.16 and 1 John 4.19. We'll get to those in a minute. Some of you might want to cheat by looking at those and looking ahead. I'm going to tell you what those verses are in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about the Greek culture that he was writing to in Corinth. Corinth was kind of the pinnacle, you know, Ephesus, Corinth, those two very famous cities. And, and in, in the Greek culture, they really represent not only that day and age, but they represent our day and age, too. Greek culture had it all. One, one scholar said, the Greeks had it all. They had uh, the plays of... Sophocles and Euripides, they had science, they developed astronomy, they were philosophers, they developed medicine, they had great libraries. In the middle of of Corinth stood a a great statue of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of fertility. In other words, yes, she was a sex goddess, right? Yeah, very much so. And, 
And in the middle of this quagmire of culture of making life work for them, of if they needed it, they invented it. Historian Matthew Arnold speaks into this culture and says this. On that sad pagan world, disgust and secret loathing fell. Weariness and sordid lust made life a living hell. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? It kind of looks familiar to me. I think we're very much, you know, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, right? I mean, uh, again, I, I want to tell you, I, I want to speak to culture a lot on Sundays because I think we have to understand how the word that we're looking at is a relevant word for our day and age. That doesn't mean I'm beating up on the culture. It means that we're, we're kind of interpreting the needs of the culture. And I think that describes us very well in the picture that we see, the picture of, hey, we got it all, and if we want it, if we need it, let's invent it. Let's, let's fix all of our problems through our ingenuity and reason. Let's, let's, let's let the hinge of history swing around reason rather than the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then you realize love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, does not boast, does not rejoice in wrong. Why is it then that Paul, speaking into this church in the middle of this culture, says, you can do this? Why is that? Philippians 1.6 says this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And 1 John 4.19 says this very famously says this. Why do we love? Why do we love? Because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. In other words, loved people love people. Loved people love people. Let me illustrate. I remember when I was in college, I was trying to figure out Differences between men and women, because it just kind of was blowing my mind how different we were. It was just sort of dawning on me, hey, we're really, really different, right? And then, like, gosh, here's this guy named Larry Crabb who wrote this book called Men and Women. And let's figure this out. And I opened up this book. And you you got to go, go, go look at this book. It's a great book on men and women and the differences. And, um, and the first half of the book is not about men and women. I'm like, when is he going to get to the point, Right? You know what the first half of the book is about? It's about being loved by God. It's about being loved by God. See, Larry Crabb understood this principle. Loved people love people. Let me say it one more time. Loved people love people. In other words, there's something empowering. There's something that gives you power and capacity, ability to love others well when you identify with the love of God, what does that mean? Well, J.I. Packer helps us with this a little bit. J.I. Packer is probably the, 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 living, the living expert on Calvin and on Reformed doctrine. He's probably the world's greatest theologian, uh, Reformed theologian. And he talks about uh, the connection between 
the Old Testament and the New Testament a lot, and the fulfillment of the covenant, right? And what does that look like? And in the Old Testament, there was this breastplate called the ephod, and it's kind of a mysterious thing. It had all these different jewels in it, 12 different jewels that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And the high priest would wear this ephod when he would go in to pray for the people, when he would go in to burn the incense into the Holy of Holies. He would wear this ephod. Why? The idea is that when he stepped into there, he's representing the whole, not just the part. You saw these, these dear friends of ours who are serving through the church. They represent us. They don't represent us to God, but they, they do represent the whole of us, that, that, that the way they're intentionally living before us is the way that we're all called to live. And so what does the effort have to do with Jesus? Well, Jesus is our high priest. And so when he comes before God, God doesn't see you at your 49%. He sees Jesus at his 100%. You see, the rest of this passage, this love chapter says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Where have you seen that happen? Where, where else? You've seen it on the cross where Jesus bore all for us. He believed that what he was doing would be powerful to save us. But he was hopeful for us. You see, Jesus looks at you and recognizes that there's something there. There's something there that's valuable to him. Something there that's worth saving. Not worthy, but worth saving. When I, when I think of this, this point in understanding the gospel, uh, I think of this this movie, I won't tell you which movie it is because I don't want you to be distracted by the politics of it, but it was one president standing before the portrait of another president and he was sort of having this reflective moment and he was, he was, it, was it was not a good moment for him and he was contrasting himself to a, a previous president and he says, in the movie, he says this, he says, I look out at the people and I see them as they are you looked out at the people and you saw what they could be. You see, that's Jesus in your life. When you recognize that, that the cross isn't just some place far away, that the resurrection isn't just some ineffable uh, ideal that happened, when you read the love chapter, you should read it as someone that God has and is in the process of equipping to fulfill that call, that ideal. Not because of any merit in you, but because loved people love people. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for that powerful love that you have for us. That it's not just meaning in our life, but it's power in and through our life. God, today... Would you give us a stronger vision and experience of your powerful love? That we wouldn't move towards people to get what only you can give us, what you've already given us. Would you bring home to us in the quiet of this moment, this closing moment, 
through the worship, through this song of praise, would you lift up our hearts? Would you help us to embrace the powerful love of Jesus Christ that it may be made complete, not only in us, but through us. For we prayed in Jesus' name, amen.